To get this episode of Forensic Tales ad-free, please visit patreon.com slash Forensic Tales. Forensic Tales discusses topics that some listeners may find disturbing. The contents of this episode may not be suitable for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. For over a decade, a string of unsolved homicides known as the Gilgo Beach Murders terrorized Long Island residents and stumped investigators after a woman's 2010 disappearance led authorities to find 10 sets of human remains. But finally, authorities believe that they have caught the man dubbed the Long Island serial killer through advanced forensic testing. The suspect is currently being held in jail and charged with at least three of the murders. Within days of his arrest, court documents related to the case were released to the public. This disturbing document outlines all the evidence against him and why the police believe they have their suspect. This is Forensic Tales, episode number 186, The Arrest of the Long Island Serial Killer. Welcome to Forensic Tales. I'm your host, Courtney Fretwell Ariola. Forensic Tales is a weekly true crime podcast covering real, spine tingling stories with a forensic science twist. Some cases have been solved with forensic science, while others have turned cold. Every remarkable story sends us a chilling reminder that not all stories have happy endings. As a one woman show, Your support helps me find new compelling cases, conduct in-depth fact-based research, and produce and edit this weekly show. You can support my work in two simple ways. Become a valued patron at patreon.com slash Forensic Tales, or leave a positive review. Now, let's get to this week's episode. Hi, Forensic Tales listeners. I'm doing something different on the show this week. In fact, I've only done this one other time before when I released a special episode on the Idaho College murders. But I've received so many requests from you to cover this story on the show. Like the special episode on the Idaho College murders, I was hesitant to do it because I usually like to cover solved cases or unsolved cases where we have a lot more information and I can really tell you the complete story. I typically don't cover stories as recent or as new as what I'm about to do this week. So this episode is going to be a little different, but this is what so many of you have asked me for and it just feels right to do it. So here it is. In this episode, I'm going to revisit the timeline of events what we know, and what's still a mystery. We'll talk about the victims and the suspect. We'll also take a deep dive into all the forensic evidence we know about so far, 
including everything outlined in the publicly released 32-page court document related to the case. This important document sheds light on how authorities zeroed in on the serial killer who had managed to evade capture for years. I'm talking about the Long Island serial killer and the arrest of Rex Hewerman. In case you're new to the show or you just haven't listened to the entire back catalog of episodes, I actually covered the Long Island serial killer back in episode 74. So if you're interested in diving deeper into the case, you can. But even if you haven't listened to the episode or if you don't know much about the details of the case, don't worry. I'm going to go over all of them in this episode. Now, it won't be as in-depth as a regular episode, but I'm going to share all the important case details leading up to this arrest, as well as deeply dive into the official court documents to discuss the forensics. All right, now let's get into it. It started in December 2010 when human remains were found along Ocean Parkway in Gilgo Beach on the south shore of Long Island, New York. The remains were discovered because law enforcement was in the Gilgo Beach area searching for then-missing 24-year-old Shannon Gilbert. Shannon disappeared earlier that year in May after visiting a client's home and making a 23-minute 911 call saying, they're trying to kill me. Shannon, who worked as a sex worker, made that chilling 911 call around 5 o'clock a.m. on the morning of May 1st, 2010. While on the phone with 911, Shannon didn't tell them exactly where she was, but she did say that she was on Long Island. At times during this phone call, she was heard speaking to her driver and security guard, Michael Pack, saying things like, please, get me out of here, Mike. While authorities searched for Shannon Gilbert in the remote beach towns of Gilgo and Oak Beach, they accidentally stumbled upon the remains of four other women. The first was Melissa Bartholomew on December 11, 2010. 24-year-old Melissa went missing in July 2009. She was living in the Bronx in New York, working as an escort through the popular website Craigslist. She would post on the website about her services, and then men who were interested would respond to them. On the night she disappeared, she deposited almost $1,000 into her bank account. After that, she was never heard from again. Although her sister claimed that someone had stolen her cell phone and was using it to send vulgar text messages to them claiming to be her, but... According to her family, they don't think it was actually her. Two days after Melissa's body was discovered, the Suffolk County police found three more women within only a quarter mile of each other on Gilgo Beach. They were Maureen Bernard Barnes, Megan Waterman, and Amber Costello. 22-year-old Megan went missing in June 2010 after she also placed ads on Craigslist looking for clients. And she was last seen about 15 miles away from Gilgo Beach at a New York hotel. 
Then there was 27-year-old Amber Costello. Like Megan and Melissa, she also worked as an escort in 2010. And she was last seen in September 2010. But her family didn't report her missing right away because they thought that she might be in rehab because of her drug addiction. So they didn't officially report her missing until after they realized that they hadn't heard from her in a while. Finally, there was 25-year-old mother of two, Maureen Barnes. She was last seen in July 2007 after she told family and friends she planned to spend the day in New York City. But she never returned home. Like the other victims, she also worked as an escort and regularly used Craigslist to get clients. All four of the victims shared a lot of similarities, which told investigators that they were probably looking for a serial killer. They were found less than a quarter mile away from one another, about 20 to 30 feet from the edge of Ocean Parkway. They were in their 20s, ranging from 22 to 27 years old. They worked as paid escorts or sex workers who used the website Craigslist They all had missing clothes and other personal items. All had been murdered with their bodies posed in similar positions. And they were all relatively petite and small. Because all four women were found along one spot of Ocean Parkway, they became known as the Gilgo Beach Murders. But the similarities didn't stop there. All four victims had contact with someone using a burner phone shortly before their disappearance. And the killer used the cell phones of two of the four victims after their deaths. What started as the search for one missing woman, Shannon Gilbert, had unexpectedly turned into the search for a serial killer. A man the media quickly dubbed the Long Island serial killer. Three months later, more remains were found on Gilgo Beach in March 2011, Jessica Taylor. But this time, the authorities only found part of Jessica's remains. That's because other body parts were discovered eight years earlier in Monroeville, a town in Suffolk County. One month later, three more bodies were found in April. The first was 24-year-old Valerie Mack from Philadelphia. Like Jessica Taylor, the authorities had also discovered some of her remains years earlier in September 2000, the same year she went missing. Then the rest of her remains were found on Gilgo Beach. On the same exact day that Jessica Taylor's partial remains were found, investigators discovered the remains of a child that they believed would be around two years old. And these remains were also found along Ocean Parkway, near where Valerie Mack's partial remains were found. And today, this toddler still remains unidentified. Finally, a third body was discovered that same day. The remains of an unidentified Asian male were also found along Ocean Parkway. Authorities estimated that he was somewhere between 17 and 23 when he died. And based on the condition of the remains, they believed he was killed about 5 to 10 years earlier. 
In total, Suffolk County investigators found the remains of three humans along the same stretch of Ocean Parkway in Gilgo Beach on the same day, April 4th, 2011. But that wasn't all. The body count only went up from there. A few days later, on April 11th, 2011, two more bodies were found about seven miles from the beach. One person hasn't been identified yet and is simply known as Jane Doe number seven. And the second set of remains is believed to be those of the mother of the toddler who was found a few days earlier. DNA testing on the remains concluded that the two of them are related. In case you've lost track, that brings the body count to 10, all within a few miles of one another. Given the number of victims, Suffolk County investigators were under a tremendous amount of pressure to find the man they dubbed the Long Island serial killer. And the FBI even joined the manhunt in 2015. But even with all of that law enforcement manpower, they weren't able to make any arrests in the case. And for many years, people wondered if the Long Island serial killer would get away forever. By February 2022, the Gilgo Homicide Investigation Task Force was created. And the task force was a law enforcement powerhouse, including both state and federal agencies. And just a few weeks after the task force was created, they received their first massive break in the case. A break that they had spent over a decade searching for. Hey, Forensic Tales listeners, Courtney here. Do you hate listening to ads? Well, you can listen to every single episode of this show ad-free through Patreon, starting for just $3 a month. And what's great? You don't have to change how you listen. You can still enjoy ad-free episodes of Forensic Tales through most podcast apps. As a patron, you'll also get other great perks, like weekly bonus episodes, This is where I give you my reaction to each week's story that I don't share in regular episodes. But more importantly, your support means I can continue to deliver high-quality weekly true crime stories. Don't forget, Forensic Tales is just a one-woman show. If you're interested in learning more, go to patreon.com slash forensictales. That's patreon.com slash Forensic Tales. There's also a link in the show notes. Now, back to the episode. Almost everything we're about to discuss comes from the 32-page bail application document that was recently made public. The entire document is available online for you to read for yourself but I'm going to discuss everything for you now so you don't have to read everything because this document outlines how the authorities were able to zero in on the man they believe is the Long Island serial killer, as well as the mountain of forensic evidence that they say they have against him. On July 13th, 2023, 59-year-old Rex Hewerman was arrested by Suffolk County police officers on three counts of murder. He was arrested for allegedly murdering Melissa Bartholome 
Amber Costello, and Megan Waterman. In total, he was charged on six charges, three counts of first-degree murder and three counts of second-degree murder for the three murders. Although 10 bodies have been found along Ocean Parkway, he's only being charged with three of them right now. When we get to the end of the episode, I'll talk about the next steps for law enforcement and whether there could be some additional charges in the future. According to these court documents, in January 2022, the Suffolk County District Attorney's Office assigned a team of investigators to the case. They included the Suffolk County Police Department, the New York State Police Department, the Suffolk County Sheriff's Department, and the FBI. Together, they became known as the Gilgo Homicide Investigation Task Force, a law enforcement dream team. About two months after this task force was assembled, a major discovery was made on March 14, 2022. The task force became aware of a first-generation Chevrolet Avalanche that was registered to Rex A. Hewerman at the time of the murders, the man who was arrested last week. This was huge for the task force because a witness to the disappearance of Amber Costello identified a first-generation Chevy Avalanche as the car believed to have been driven by the killer. Once the task force heard Rex Hewerman's name, they started digging deeper into his background. This led the task force to request more than 300 subpoenas and search warrants to obtain evidence and decide whether this was really their guy, the Long Island serial killer. Cell phone evidence was the first major evidence to emerge from the over 300 search warrants and subpoenas. According to the court document, dozens of cell phone billing records prove that Hewerman used burner cell phones to arrange meetings with the victims, use the victim's cell phones to make taunting phone calls to their relatives, and checked one of his victim's voicemails after she disappeared. Now, here's a complete breakdown of the cell phone evidence and what it means for the investigation. As outlined in the court documents, the police believe Hewerman used burner phones to contact his victims before they disappeared, starting with his first victim, Melissa. On July 3, 2009, seven days before she went missing, a burner phone was used to call her cell phone. After that phone call, that same burner phone was used to call Melissa's cell phone three more times. July 6th, July 9th, and July 10th, 2009, which was the same day she was last seen. On July 10th, cell site records indicate that the burner phone traveled from Massapequa Park to Midtown Manhattan. Later that night, Melissa's cell phone traveled from Midtown Manhattan to Massapequa, with the last cell site location being Massapequa, on July 11th, 2009. Let's stop there for a second because both of these locations are extremely important. Massapequa Park and Midtown Manhattan. They're important because according to the court document, Hewerman, the prime suspect, 
worked in Manhattan and lived in Massapequa Park. So that means that Melissa's cell phone, one of the victims, as well as the burner phone, were near Hewerman's house and his work the day that she disappeared, as well as the day afterwards. Law enforcement also alleges that the burner phone was also used in these two locations around the time of Melissa's disappearance, and it was only used either at his work location or near his home. But that's not all the cell phone evidence they have in Melissa's case. That's because they also have proof that her phone was used after she disappeared on July 10th, and investigators alleged it was Hewerman who was using her cell phone. On July 11th and July 12th, Melissa's cell phone made two outbound calls to her voicemail. Then a few days later, on July 17th, August 5th, August 19th, and August 26th, her cell phone was used to make taunting phone calls to her mother. Now, this was weeks after she was last seen alive on July 10th, and weeks after the phone last traveled between Hewerman's work location and his home. Plus, according to cell phone tower data, all of these taunting phone calls were either made in midtown Manhattan, right near his work office, or his home in Massapequa. Now let's talk about the cell phone evidence involving the second victim, Megan Waterman. Megan was last seen in New York on June 6, 2010. But the day before, June 5th, a burner phone was used to contact her just like Melissa. And this phone had only been purchased and activated the day before it was used to contact her. But after it was used to contact Megan on June 5th, the cell phone wasn't used again. However, cell site records show that Megan's phone traveled from Massapequa Park, with the last cell site location being in Massapequa Park at 3.11 a.m., right around Hewerman's home. Finally, the third victim, Amber Costello. Amber was last seen on September 2, 2010, and right before she disappeared, someone using a burner phone contacted her. During these phone calls between the burner and Amber's cell phone, the person using the burner phone was near West Amityville and Massapequa Park. After speaking with Amber, the burner phone traveled to West Babylon, the exact location where Amber was last seen alive. So whoever contacted Amber using the burner had likely arranged a meeting with her, and Amber agreed to meet up with them. But besides the cell phone evidence, something else significant came from the Amber Costello investigation. And that was the eyewitness who described seeing a first-generation Chevy Avalanche parked out in front of Amber's place in West Babylon the night she disappeared. This was the same type of car investigators discovered was registered to Rex Hewerman at the time. So they believed he used the burner to contact Amber through one of her Craigslist ads and drove to her last known whereabouts in West Babylon. According to what we know from the court documents, all of these cell phone data suggest that the Long Island serial killer 
used burner phones to contact at least three of his victims right before they disappeared. But how do they know that it was Rex Hewerman using the burner phones? Well, according to these same court documents, there's strong evidence for that too. At the time of all three disappearances and murders, Hewerman owned an architectural business in Midtown Manhattan, and this business was the name subscriber on his cell phone, which was active during all the murders and was subscribed to his home address in Massapequa Park. Even though cell phone records from around the time of the murders no longer exist, investigators still have his cellular billing records. And these records provide general location information from when and where his cell phone was used. The authorities also said his American Express records demonstrate multiple instances where he was in the same location the burner phones were used to contact the victims. For instance, on July 10, 2009, the last day Melissa was seen alive, both the burner phone and Hewerman's personal cell phone were in the same area of Massapequa and traveled together toward New York City. After that, both Melissa's cell phone and his cell phone traveled back to his house in Massapequa. According to the documents, this serves as proof that the burner phones shared the same geographic location as Hewerman's own personal cell phone location. From there, the court document outlines at least 10 additional instances where the burner phones used to contact the victims before their disappearance were used in the same location as Hewerman's personal cell phone. And after the murders, the cell phones traveled together alongside the victim's own cell phone. In many of these instances, authorities allege he contacted the victim from a location less than a tenth of a mile from his architectural business in Midtown Manhattan. Now let's talk about how he got the burner phones without tipping off the police in the early days of the investigation. According to court documents, fictitious email accounts were discovered that linked Hewerman to the burner phones used to contact the victims. While executing the search warrant and subpoenas, investigators uncovered at least two fake email addresses associated with the burner phones, springfieldman9 at aol.com and thok080672 at gmail.com. Hewerman's American Express records showed a reoccurring Google Pay payment to Tinder, an online dating app. And after further digging, authorities discovered that Hewerman used the alias Andy for his Tinder profile. His middle name is Andrew, so that's probably how he came up with the alias. But that's not all they uncovered. The alias Andy Roberts was also used to set up the burner phone with the phone number 347-885-1697, one of the phones used in the murders. The number was also registered to the email address springfieldman9 at aol.com. But how does that tie back to Humerman? Well, the springfieldman9 at aol.com email address was created with AOL on July 15, 2011. 
The same email address was also used for the second burner phone with the phone number 347-304-2671, another cell phone used to contact the victims. On December 11, 2022, Verizon cell phone records revealed that Hewerman's cell phone was used to access that same Springfieldman9 at AOL.com email address, the same email used to register both burner phones. This means he had access to the fake email account because it was the same name he used for his Tinder account, and he accessed it years later with his own personal cell phone in December 2022. Then there was the Thok 80672 at gmail.com email account. Subpoenas served on Google revealed that another burner phone used to contact the victim was registered to that email account. That email was registered to the fictitious name of Thomas Hawk. Not only was that the burner phone used to contact the victims, but it was also used to conduct thousands of searches related to sex workers, sadistic torture-related pornography, and child porn. Some of the searches made on the burner phone included nude slave girls, schoolgirls, and tied-up and raped porn. Between March 2022 and June 2023, this Thok email address was also used to make 200 searches related to the Gilgo Beach murders. Some of those searches included Long Island Serial Killer, Long Island Serial Killer Updates, Mapping the Long Island Murder Victims, and Why Could Law Enforcement Not Trace Calls Made by the Long Island Serial Killer. Searches were also made to several podcasts and television shows who covered the murders. So investigators believe that over the years, Hewerman was conducting Google searches on his own murders to see what the police knew. But again, how do authorities tie this Gmail account back to the suspect? Well, according to the court documents, that email address was also registered to the burner phone with the phone number 347-304-2671. Besides that, authorities found a selfie of Hewerman on the phone. And they also found surveillance video from a cell phone store in Midtown Manhattan showing Hewerman in the store purchasing additional minutes, which were added to this burner phone. If the task force wasn't sure they had their guy solely based on cell phone data, they were even more confident after reviewing the forensic evidence. After all three victims were discovered, they were sent to be examined by forensic scientists at the Suffolk County Crime Lab. And after they were examined, investigators uncovered a lot of forensic evidence that they say directly ties Rex Hewerman to the murders. The first is Megan Waterman. When authorities found Megan's body, she had been bound with clear and white duct tape. And when the tape was removed, they found two female hairs stuck to it. Based on the limited amount of genetic material on the hair, 
scientists determined that the hair likely belonged to a white female of European descent. But without sufficient DNA on the hair, they couldn't do any type of DNA testing on it. Then there was the hair found on the second victim, Amber Costello. Like Megan, scientists also found unknown female hair on the clear and white duct tape that was used to bind her. But there wasn't much that they could do with it. They didn't know if the hairs came from the same person, and they weren't even sure if the hair belonged to the victim or not. But all of that was about to change because DNA testing was rapidly evolving. By mid-2022, the task force decided to have the hair retested at two different independent crime labs to see if they could find out who the hair belonged to. So in July 2022, the hair was sent to the first independent lab. The first lab used advanced DNA tests to determine that the hair recovered from both Megan and Amber's bodies didn't belong to either victim. Instead, the hair belonged to a female individual in mitochondrial haplogroup K1C2. Once the task force learned that the hair didn't belong to the victims, they set out on a mission to find out who it did belong to. So according to the court documents, they had two undercover officers sit outside Rex Huerman's house on July 21st, 2022. And once he put the trash outside on the curb, the undercover officers went in and collected several items from his trash. The items were then sent back to the independent crime lab for comparison. And on one of the items collected from the trash, scientists pulled a DNA profile from it. Through DNA testing, they also discovered that the DNA profile also belonged to a female from the mitochondrial haplogroup K1C2, which is the same group as the female hairs recovered from the victims. But what exactly does this mean? Rex Hewerman, the prime suspect and the man that law enforcement say is a Long Island serial killer, isn't a female. So how does this unknown female hair link him to the murders? Well, insert the wife. According to court documents, the female hair found on the victims belongs to Rex Hewerman's wife. Investigators believe he inadvertently transported his wife's hair and transferred the hair to his victims. That explains why the hair didn't belong to either victim and why they came from the same mitochondrial haplogroup. And the DNA matched his wife's DNA. The hair samples were sent to a second independent lab in March 2023 for more testing. And this second lab confirmed the results of the first lab. They said, quote, that the DNA sample from the female recovered from the bottles outside the residence of Hewerman or Hewerman's wife and the female hair on Costello indicate that the mitochondrial DNA profiles are the same at all compared positions common to and between samples, specifically 
at a rate that would, as per the RMPOP database, exclude 99.998% of the North American population from the female hair on Costello, end quote. They also had the same test results for the hair found on Megan Waterman's body. In other words, there is only a 99.998% chance the hair found on the victims belonged to anyone other than Hewerman's wife. On top of female hair that investigators now say belongs to the wife, investigators also found male hairs on some of the victims. When Megan Waterman's body was found, her remains were wrapped in some type of burlap material. And when the burlap was examined, investigators recovered male hairs from the bottom of it. Like the female hairs on the duct tape, investigators couldn't test the hair when it was first discovered. But by 2020, the hairs were retested. And when the results came back, investigators learned that the hair belonged to a male in the mitochondrial haplogroup V7A. Now all the task force needed to do was to get Hewerman's DNA and see if it came from the same DNA group. So on January 26, 2023, undercover officers recovered a pizza box from his trash can, and the pizza box was sent to the Suffolk County Crime Lab for analysis. This is what court documents say about the DNA testing that was done on the pizza box. Quote, on or about June 12, 2023, the crime lab was able to determine as to the male hair on Megan Waterman and the swab from the pizza crust that the mitochondrial DNA profiles are the same, specifically at a rate that would, as per the EMPOP database, exclude 9996 of the North American population from the male hair on Waterman. Based on the foregoing, while 99.9% of the North American population can be excluded from the male hair on Waterman, it is significant that defendant Hewerman cannot be excluded from the male hair recovered near the bottom of the burlap utilized to restrain and transport Megan Waterman's naked and deceased body. End quote. Based on the cell phone data, fake email accounts, and the hair recovered on the victims, authorities believe they have finally caught the Long Island serial killer, Rex Hewerman. Authorities believe that he used Craigslist to find his victims. Once he saw an ad that he liked on the escort services section, he used a burner phone to contact his victims. He used fake email accounts and fictitious names to purchase and register the phones. But through cellular billing records, American Express credit card statements, and video surveillance obtained from a cell phone store showing him adding minutes to one of the burner phones, the authorities believe it was Hewerman who purchased the phones and attempted to conceal his identity. After he contacted the victim, he arranged a meeting with them. His victims thought they were meeting a client, 
but they were wrong. They were meeting a serial killer. According to the authorities, once Hewerman met up with his victims, he murdered them and dumped their bodies along Ocean Parkway in Long Island. He then stole their cell phones and in some instances used the phones to taunt loved ones. Over the next decade, investigators believe Hewerman used his cell phone to conduct Google searches on the case. And for years, he was looking at images of his victims online. And he was searching to see what podcasts and shows had covered his story. He also wanted to find out what the police knew and where the investigation stood. According to the court documents, Authorities believe Hewerman waited for his wife and children to leave town before selecting his next victim. They don't think his wife had anything to do with the murders, despite her hair being present on some of the victims. They believe that Hewerman perpetrated all the murders while his wife and kids were away and out of the house, so they would have no idea. As of July 13, 2023, Rex Hewerman has been arrested by the Suffolk County Police Department and is being held on three charges of murder. Authorities say they have enough evidence to charge him with the murders of three victims, Melissa Bartholomew, Megan Waterman, and Amber Costello. At the time this recording comes out, he hasn't been charged with the murder of Maureen Barnes, or the other victims who were also found on Gilgo Beach. But in a press conference, members of the Long Island Serial Killer Task Force said that they would continue to collect evidence and explore the possibility of additional charges. This is obviously a very recent case, and there's still so much about it to be uncovered. Although Rex Hewerman has been arrested for the murders, He's presumed innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. But right now, it doesn't look good for his defense. If you're interested in reading the entire 32-page bail application document, it's available for you to read right now online. Almost everything discussed in this episode came directly from that document published by the Suffolk County District Attorney's Office. So if you're interested in the case... I encourage you to check it out for yourself. To share your thoughts on the story, be sure to follow the show on Instagram and Facebook. To find out what I think about the case, sign up to become a patron at patreon.com slash forensic tales. After each episode, I release a bonus episode where I share my personal thoughts and opinions about the case. Don't forget to subscribe to Forensic Tales so you don't miss an episode. We release a new episode every Monday. If you love the show, consider leaving us a positive review or tell friends and family about us. You can also support the show through Patreon. Thank you so much for joining me this week. Please join me next week. We'll have a brand new case and a brand new story to talk about. Until then, remember... Not all stories have happy endings. Forensic Tales is a Rockefeller audio production. 
The show is written and produced by me, Courtney Fretwell Ariola. For a small monthly contribution, you can help create new compelling cases for the show, help fund research, and assist with production and editing costs. For supporting the show, you'll become one of the first to listen to new ad-free episodes and snag exclusive show merchandise not available anywhere else. To learn about how you can support the show, head over to our Patreon page, patreon.com slash Forensic Tales, or simply click the support link in the show notes. You can also support the show by leaving a positive review or telling friends and family about us. Forensic Tales is a podcast made possible by our Patreon producers, Tony A., Nicole L., Nicole G., Paula G., Christine B., Karen D., Nancy H., Sherry A., Michael D., Nicola, Jerry M., Brian W., James C., Natasha K., and Julia S. If you'd like to become a producer of the show, head over to our Patreon page or send me an email at Courtney at ForensicTales.com to find out how you can become involved. For a complete list of sources used in this episode, please visit ForensicTales.com. Thank you for listening. I'll see you next week. Until then, remember, not all stories have happy endings.